All right. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through chapter 7, verse 13. I know it looks like a um, uh, pretty significant amount of material, but you're going to see here in a moment that it's not as much as you think because it's, uh, there's a second repetition of what has already been told in the middle of this section. So we'll come to that in a second. Um, so if you have your handout, I want you to notice that there is um, a couple of things by way of overview uh, tonight. So this kind of summarizes this section. So Moses is going to obey God's leading to go to Egypt, and he's going to have to leave Midian, which is his home. And there's a strange paragraph that we will get to in just a second, uh, where along the way, the text tells us in Exodus that God wants to kill somebody. I don't know if it's Moses or somebody else, but his wife Zipporah will step in, and she will be a rescuer to uh Moses himself, which you'll see what I mean about this uh, paragraph in a second. Finally, when they get to Egypt, it's both Moses and Aaron that will perform uh, some signs before Pharaoh, and he will be confronted but not convinced. And what we find taking place is uh, the situation of Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh is going to make the life of the Israelites even harder. So if you look here at the bottom of that first section there of the first slide under introduction, you'll notice that the conflict between uh, Yahweh and Pharaoh separates really from this point forward into three parts. You have the initial confrontation, uh, and it will... Uh, lead into the ten plagues, then you will find the defeat of Pharaoh and his power, and then there is a celebration of his defeat with two hymns that are recorded in the text of Exodus. So um, that's kind of a summary of not only the section we're going to look at tonight, but also into next week as well. So what I want to do tonight is I want to talk a little bit about the mission of Moses and then talk about how he is given something that's going to enable him to confront Pharaoh. So on the next section of your handout there, you'll notice it says Pharaoh will not yield to Moses unless he is compelled. Now, what I did when I was putting tonight's notes together um, I used the same slide and made some changes and didn't realize that I didn't omit uh, a few lines. So there's going to be a few lines that are going to repeat it on this handout in a second, and I apologize for that. But um, what's going to happen is uh, Pharaoh uh, is going to be resisting Moses' um, demand to let them go out into the wilderness to worship quote, unquote, for three days. What we're going to find is that the text is going to tell us that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And when we see that, what we're going to find is 
that this story of Pharaoh and his confrontation, not just with Moses and Aaron, but also his confrontation with God himself, is strung out over a long period of time. And there seems to be, the way this is recorded in the book of Exodus, a, a narrative ploy, a narrative purpose to the text to string this out so that we are anticipating that 10th plague that is finally going to set them free. And so in this little uh, back and forth that we find over the next several chapters, uh, God is going to uh, do this over a period of time, and it seems as though that God is building a case against Pharaoh, his leadership, his power, his uh, abuse of the people of Israel. And what we're going to find is, even though Pharaoh is the focal point, it seems as though it's the entire Egyptian empire that is being attacked through these plagues. And what we're going to find is that the prolonging of the plagues builds this tension that will finally lead to triumph over Pharaoh and the kingdom that he leads and rules over. And that will come into play by attacking very specific uh, Egyptian gods. So we'll get to this here next week, is each plague is an attack against a specific God within the pantheon of the Egyptians. So it's as if God is uh, taking down each and every um, God that the Egyptians would be worshiping. So I want us to begin in verse 17 of chapter 4. And what we're going to see is there's a very specific um, tool that God gives to Moses, and it's going to be the rod. So take a look at verse 17. Um, when it says here, um, take this staff in your hand so you can perform signs with it, what we're going to find is uh, that this rod plays a very important part in not just the confidence of Moses, but it's going to be used for signs and wonders several times over. So you can see in your handout there, it appears again in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 17. So the rod, um, which the first thing that he's going to show to Moses is the rod will become a snake. Uh, so this snake rod that he throws down, it becomes a snake, he picks it back up, it becomes a staff again, becomes kind of a central um, uh, emblem that becomes for the people of Israel and for Pharaoh as well, that God is with Moses, that God's power is behind Moses. And what we're going to find is that each uh, plague is an opportunity for the Egyptians as a whole to see the power of God on display. Now, there's one problem, and the problem is um, Pharaoh himself. He is the one that is resistant. And what we find is these plagues, you would think, would cause many of the Egyptians 
to push back on what Pharaoh is doing because it has all kinds of consequences upon the population as a whole. But before we get there, what I want us to take a look at is notice in verse 18 of chapter 4, it says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. That's interesting um, that there's no, uh, there's nothing in the text that tells us Jethro pushes back saying, are you nuts, Moses, that you're going to confront Pharaoh, which suggests that maybe Moses didn't tell that part to Jethro. All he is saying is, I want to go back and visit some of my own people that are still back in Egypt. That's said again in verse 19. It says, now the Lord uh, had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So what we find taking place is Moses, as he was on the run, is, um, is in exile. And as he is in exile, after the death of Pharaoh, now the Lord is saying, you can go back. But what we're going to find is that as he sets out to Egypt, he's going to say, it says here in verse 20, he took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. There it appears again, that rod has something important in the text that it's trying to say. So this text here is going to be used later in the New Testament. This sounds very familiar to the way Matthew uh, records how Jesus and his parents flee to Egypt as they escaped Herod's genocidal uh, decree. And then it says that the Lord then told Joseph and Mary to go back to their homeland because those that were threatening them are dead. So it's kind of a reverse that's going on here. They go to Egypt, but they come back at, when they are safe. Here, the text is saying you can go back to Egypt because the one that was trying to kill you uh, is dead. Those that are trying to kill you is dead, so you can be safe in Egypt. So this mission starts off in such a way that it's interesting how um, Moses has this staff in his hand, and it's a, comfort, a comforting thing for him. Um, I think we are all familiar with therapy dogs, that type of thing. This is kind of the same thing. This is kind of a comforting uh, presence. Um, Aaron will be the same for him as well. However, uh, in this case, as he, long as he holds on to the staff of God, it's a visible reminder that God has called him to this mission and that God will be with him. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. All right. So, in verse 21, we're told here in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. 
But now I want you to, to kind of circle this in your thoughts. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Isn't that interesting? So I want you to perform all these wonders, but I'm going to harden his heart. So we gotta, we've got to uh, wrestle with that just for a few minutes here. What is it here that the text is trying to say that God is intentionally uh, making Pharaoh resist? And if he is, um, why? So here we see Pharaoh is uh, stiffening his heart. And you can look down almost to the end of page one there. I think we can't understand this stiffening of his heart unless we understand all of these other verses that are in the parentheses there. When you look at the way the plagues unfold, I think it's apparent that God does not stiffen Pharaoh's heart initially, but over a course of time, he keeps resisting, and as he keeps resisting, he's done this so many times that it says that God hardened his heart as well. So what I think is happening here, so you can take a look over, let's go over to chapter 7 for a second. And what you're going to see as you, uh, as, as Pharaoh's heart um, begins to stiffen, we find that Aaron's staff in verse 8 becomes a snake. But it is something that is going to be uh, duplicated uh, by uh, Pharaoh's magicians. And then in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. That has a little bit different flavor to it, doesn't it? His heart is unyielding, whereas back in the previous verse we just looked at, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So it seems as though what's happening here is the stiffening of his neck and the hardening of his heart is a process that by the time you get to the end of it, it's almost as if uh, Pharaoh has no other option because he has resisted this so long that he's going to go through with this no matter what. Does that help? Does that make some sense? Let's look at one more reference here. Uh, go over to chapter 8, verse 11. And here again is another plague. This time it's the plague of the frogs. And after this plague comes, um, it tells us here, um, the frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. And after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses and courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart. You see there? Again, it's not God that's hardening his heart. The text is telling us he has hardened his heart. So the theological conundrum of did God intentionally harden Pharaoh's heart, I think is relieved over the course of the plagues. Does that make sense? It's Pharaoh that's making the choice. It's not uh, Pharaoh predestined by God 
to resist each each play. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Anything you'd like to say? Good. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So she, uh, uh, Beth was just talking about how in verse 13, after Aaron's staff swallows um, up the staff of the magicians, uh, it says in verse 13 of chapter 7, Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them. So all I'm trying to say is this seems to be a process. That's all I'm trying to say. So, okay, now comes the weird story. So go back to chapter 4. And I'm going to read it uh, in its entirety. It's only verses 24 through 26. But you're going to scratch your head a little bit on this, okay? As they're en route to Egypt, it says here in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Okay, well, that's strange. But Zipporah, remember that's Moses' wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. She then says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Okay. Why is that even in the text? And what is going on here? So take a look at your hand out there. This is a tough text to interpret. Why is there this death threat against Moses? Is it a death threat that is directed to Moses? Some scholars think it might be directed toward the son uh, Gershom, who is not circumcised yet. So there's a little bit of debate. So it's interesting, the New International Version specifically selects Moses as the target of this. But there's scholars that don't agree with this, okay? So, all right. So Moses' son is not circumcised. And, and the question at this point is, why? Why wouldn't Moses have his son circumcised? Circumcision was a rite of the Abrahamic covenant all the way back to the time where Abraham is, is given this covenant. And what's fascinating here is what Zipporah does. Here is a woman. Now, remember at the beginning of Exodus, the women were the ones that saved Moses, right? placing him on the Nile River. Here, an, another woman, if you want to take the NIV reading, is saving Moses again. So a woman comes to the rescue, and what she does is she takes a knife, and she circumcises her son. And then it says she takes the foreskin of his penis and touches Moses' feet with it. Now, if you have a Bible here, uh, it says the meaning of the Hebrew down at the bottom uh, for this clause is uncertain. That's a kind way of saying they don't want to put this in the text. But what it, but what Hebrew scholars say is this is 
uh, her cutting off the foreskin of her son's penis and touching Moses' penis with it. Yeah, well, yeah. So Moses said, what did he do, drop his pants? Well, if he was wearing a robe, yeah, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> so it's a euphemism here. It's a euphemism for the genitals, the feet. That, and it seems as though what's happening here is this sacred rite of blood is goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, but it previews the last plague. So what happens here is in Moses, there is a preview of the Passover where they take the blood and they paint it over the doorpost and God passes over uh, the, the firstborn that is under the object of the plague. So you'll notice in your uh, handout there, the saving power of the bloody foreskin may foreshadow the protective role of the blood on the Israelites' doorposts on the eve of the Exodus. And that's probably why, before we get into the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the plagues, that's probably why this is inserted at this point. It seems to be a um, preview of what is to come and what is to culminate in the 10th plague. Does that make sense to everybody? So what I think is happening here is Whoever the editor of Exodus is, perhaps this is an oral tradition about what happened to Moses on his journey to Egypt. It's inserted here for a specific reason, as it is kind of a preview, a table of contents of what is to come. Any thoughts there? It's a strange passage, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Okay, so as we move along here, um, probably the thing to think about here is circumcision is a protective power. That's probably the belief system of Zipporah and the rest of the Israelites. And so to think that Moses would not follow this sacred rite and confront Pharaoh without this protective power. It seems illogical. And so what we find is Moses, in his hesitancy and in his fear, is not carrying through on the Abrahamic covenant sign. So there is a little bit here um, of, how do I want to put, the, put this, kind of superstition belief that if this son is, um, is not circumcised, all kinds of bad things are going to happen to the Israelites. So it's kind of a symbol of protective power. Okay. No, that actually goes back all the way to Abraham. Yeah, that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. So... Um, Mark was saying, well, is this when circumcision started uh, within in the scriptures? No, it goes all the way back to Genesis. So it's been around a while. 
So um, it's interesting here to think a little bit about that alternative interpretation. Scholars suggest that Moses is not the target of it, but the son is. Now, the reason I think they choose Moses as the object, because if it's the son that's the object of uh, God's anger, it places us into an ethical conundrum. And it is, oh, Pharaoh's not the only one that is mistreating the people, but even God has something against these infants as well. That's why you um, you have to wrestle with it. But I think the NIV probably chose the better option. Does that make sense? It's probably Moses that's the object here and not the son, because there are some consequences to choosing the other interpretive option. Okay. All right, so now we come to the initial confrontation with Pharaoh. And so I want you to notice a couple things here when you begin to read about this. Um, you see that the Lord says to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And then Moses told everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. Isn't it funny that even Moses is not speaking to his own elders, let alone Pharaoh? He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. So initially, this is important to keep in mind here. Initially, the people believe they're in support of what Aaron and Moses are going to do. It's not going to be but a few uh, verses later, they're going to want to kill Moses too because life has gotten hard for them after Pharaoh resists. But here, it's important to notice that the people are behind what Moses and Aaron are going to do. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord says. Uh, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And this phrase here is connects even to verse 22 of chapter 4. This is what the Lord says. This is a very prophetic pronouncement. The prophets use this phrase a lot in their writings. Thus say, says the Lord. So this is prophetic speech. Uh, and many of, the, um, many of the prophets, their ministry was to confront the kings of their day. So I put a reference here to Amos. Uh, the book of Amos is a good example of this confrontation, and you can look at that on your own. But what's important to think about here is Moses and Aaron are ahead of time acting like prophets, okay? Uh, the prophetic office will open up a little bit later in the history of Israel, but they are functioning as prophets when they use this prophetic uh, statement, thus says the Lord. Does that make sense to everybody? So this public proclamation of, of 
the Lord says is directed to Pharaoh, but you'll notice how Pharaoh responds. Um, he says, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. He's never heard of Yahweh, all right? And so why would I let go of my power? Why would I, the superior, being the Pharaoh, yield to the inferior, the slaves, right? So what we find taking place here is if, as you go down in verse 6, we're going to see uh, that Pharaoh um, is going to make their life harder by doubling the amount of bricks that they are to produce. But I want you to jump down to verse 10 because it's set in contrast to uh, what has been said by thus saith the Lord. In verse 10, it says, um, this is what Pharaoh says. So there's a contrast. This is a battle between God and Pharaoh. Yeah, Moses and Aaron are the spokesmen for God, but the battle is really between God and Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, no. Thus says Pharaoh. Do you get the idea there? It's this uh, contrast that's taking place. And the next thing that we see is that Pharaoh is going to resist. And uh, because he's never heard of uh, Yahweh, um, why would he agree as the sovereign to yield to his slaves? So notice what happens. It says, uh, verse 4 of chapter 5, the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Enough of this dawdling around. Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. So get back to work. That same day, Pharaoh gave the order of the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. Now, imagine the difficulty of this. It's not just the slave labor of making bricks. But now they've got to double the amount and they have to go and collect the mud and other things uh, that they use to make the bricks. And so this is a this is a huge, huge um, burden that is placed upon the people. Verse eight says, require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. And so that's what happens. The slave drivers go back and uh, the text tells us here that um, not only do they put this demand upon them, but uh, what we find is that um, verse 14, they begin beating the slave drivers begin beating the Israelite overseers, the foremen that are on the job, and uh, they demand, why haven't you met your quote of uh, bricks yesterday or today as before? And so these foremen go to Pharaoh and appeal to him in verse 15, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet they are told make bricks. Now, notice what Pharaoh does in verse 17. Lazy. That's what you are, lazy. 
That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw. You must produce your full quota. Uh, he's not going to reduce the amount. So double the labor is taking place. So Pharaoh is um, is 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 not only resisting um, the the um, managers, the overseers, the um, construction workers, uh, leaders. He is resisting God because in the text it keeps saying. I'm not going to let you go out to the festival uh, to worship God. You know, he sees through this ruse of going out and worshiping God. He knows that they're not going to come back. And so he is going to increase their labor. He's going to punish them. And that brings us then to chapter six. All this time, we find that Moses has the staff in his hand, but that's not enough convincing for him. So look at verse 22, chapter 5. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So he's defeated. And because he's defeated, he needs a pep talk. And this pep talk is quite interesting because it's a repetition of something that he already knows. So in verse one, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, he will let them go because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now. Here is the first step to help Moses build his confidence. And it's repeated. So if you were to keep your uh, finger in chapter six and you were to go back to chapter three, and we're not going to do that because it probably would take us a lot of time to do this. All of chapter six is a repetition of what God already told Moses back in chapter three and part of chapter four. So here's what he says. The divine name is revealed. God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself uh, fully known to them. They didn't know God's name is Yahweh. Uh, so what he, it says here, and if you just look at um, the on page three of your handout, the divine name is revealed. You could go back to chapter three, the burning bush episode. It's a repetition of that. God knows the misery of the people. Uh, you see that in verse five here in uh, chapter six. I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Then it goes down and Moses is told what to say uh, when he goes before Pharaoh, which is a repetition from chapter three. Um, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And, and then Moses will object. Come down to verse 12 here in chapter six. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? 
And so later in chapter 7, this finishes off the parallel that was uh, earlier in Exodus by Aaron being named the mouthpiece. But right after he has this statement in verse 12 that he can't speak to Pharaoh because he has faltering lips, it doesn't go directly to uh, Aaron as the mouthpiece. The editors insert a genealogy. So that is not repeated from the previous chapters. That's new information. So why the repetition, number one, and why the section that contains a genealogy? Well, I think the needed pep talk is a reminder to Moses, but why the genealogy? Why would the writer intentionally interrupt the flow of what he's saying to insert all of these names? Well, it seems as though he's building a case here for both uh, Moses and Aaron coming from the tribe of Levi, all right? So you have a listing of all these names, and if you want to have fun uh, trying to figure out how to pronounce a lot of them, well, go for it, okay? So he then, in verse 25, uh, it says, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. okay? Keep that name in mind. It's going to come back here in a second. Um, and then it says, these were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. There's the reason for the genealogy. So it's already been established that Moses and Aaron are acting like prophets. Now this is establishing that they will hold the office of priests as well. And so this listing of names, it's a long way to get to it. Um, those of us who read it and don't care about these names so much would say, well, just, just get to the fact that they were from the tribe of Levi, right? Yeah. But for the Hebrews, it was very important to establish this lineage. And for the Jewish people, it was significant to follow and trace the lineage uh, from the tribe of Levi. So I think that's why it's inserted here. Um, and then verse 26, I think it tells us a little bit more. It was Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. So it wasn't like trying to get onto the plane down at the Miami airport. Remember that, SST? When we were in the Miami airport, they didn't call uh, section by section like when you're at the airport when you're getting onto the plane. It was just a mad rush to get get in. And um, that was in Venice. That was in Venice. I'm sorry. Yeah. That was. I'm sorry. That was in Venice. But I remember it was on that trip. They just kind of all in mass, just kind of. So that's you can understand the problem that that would have, wouldn't right? If you had all these people trying to exit Egypt all at the same time, throwing elbows to get to the front of the line, right? Okay. So here he tells them, lead them out division by division. Um, and then what it says is, um, as, as they do so, 
you um, are to, uh, verse 27, they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. So it's just establishing who the head of the Israelite community is as they exit out, as they continue to be nomads for a long time in the wilderness, as they will wander for quite a, a long period of time, and it establishes their leadership once again. So um, what Moses is told is to uh, stay with the mission, go and confront Pharaoh. So God promises uh, to do uh, a number of things here, and in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, you'll notice here uh, there are seven things that God promises to do. It says in verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So uh, you see on your handout there, here are the seven actions of God. To free the Israelites from their slave labor, deliver them from slavery, redeem them, make them his own people, to display that he, uh, he is their God, to bring them into a promised land that goes all the way back to uh, Abraham and to give them possession of that land. So that short paragraph is significant uh, because it kind of unfolds the promises of God that's being uh, made to Aaron and to uh, the rest, uh, and Moses and the rest of the Israelites. Any thoughts or questions there? So that brings us to Aaron's ascension in in terms of his. And this going to this last part is going to take us to the end of our time tonight, um, because it's fascinating the connection to Aaron's family here and some of the things that happen. So Aaron becomes critical to the mission. We already know that, but it's reiterated again in chapter seven. Uh, and you come down uh, to verse 12. It says, each one threw their staff down. This is when they're confronting uh, uh, Pharaoh and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So this episode, when they go in and demand to let the, the people go out to worship God, um, the first sign is that staff that we've been talking about. If you come up to verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Now, isn't it interesting here that the shift is to Aaron's staff, even though earlier in the, the chapters we were looking at, it was Moses that was holding the staff. So it says, verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. 
And then Pharaoh invites his magicians to come in, his wise men and sorcerers, and they're able to duplicate the same, the same thing. And then what we find is that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So evidently Aaron's snake was more powerful than their snakes. Okay. How long did this take? I don't know how long this took. All right. I don't even know how many uh, wise men and sorcerers there were. Was it one or three or 20? I don't know. But verse 13 says, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord said. Why would his heart become hard? He doesn't want to lose his workforce. Okay, he doesn't want to lose his slave labor. Um, so what we find here, and this is where we're going to stop here, but we've got to follow the family tree of Aaron for a minute. So the genealogy in the preceding chapter is quite significant because that genealogy eventually gets to a man by the name of Phineas. And this priestly line that is being traced by the editor of the book is tracing it from Aaron down through his descendants to Phineas. Now, when you do read this genealogy, you're going to come across some characters in here that appear later in the Torah. So you can see by... Um, the very last page of your handout there, we can trace this lineage. And Aaron has some descendants that are rebelling against the established order that God put in place. The first one is a guy by the name of Korah, which is Aaron's cousin. But if you keep your thumb here, go over to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. When you get to chapter 16, here is a story about Korah. And what we find here is they become dissatisfied with the leadership. Look at verse 1. Korah, the son of Izhar, and the son of Kohath, and you can double check that back against the genealogy, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, son of Heleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. Um, what's going to take place here in Numbers is going to be a residual effect of how hard it was to get out of Egypt and all the hardship of the Israelites to get out of Egypt as they are made slaves, their production has to continue. They too will have to go through this long period of time when the plagues unfold. And now in the book of Numbers, why would they rebel? Because what takes place is as they go to the edge of the promised land, they're going to send out some spies to do reconnaissance on the land of Canaan. And when the report comes back that the people are more powerful there, the Canaanites, there are 12 tribes that are sent out, and only two of them, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, 
come back and say, the Lord's with us. Let's move ahead into the land. The rest of the people, uh, the rest of the spies rather, say, no, we can't go in. And the people follow after that, the majority report of the leadership. And so what is taking place here is they want to they want to oust the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and they want to set themselves up. Um, if you if you uh, read this whole chapter, you will find that God is going to um, establish Moses and Aaron's leadership again. Um, uh, if you jump down to verse twenty eight of number 16, uh, Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them, oh my gosh, with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Wow. So Moses is setting up this test case, isn't he? And notice what happens, verse 31. As soon as he finished saying all of this, the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all that were associated with Korah together with their possessions. Okay? So, Moses has had a problem of leadership. People are resistant to his leadership and to Aaron's as well, even though the Lord continues to show his power behind Moses and Aaron. Now, some other, look at your study sheet there, some other relatives of Aaron, this time Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, they show up in Leviticus chapter 10. So if you come back a few chapters to the book of Leviticus. So here's Aaron's sons, and this is the priestly line. And yet the sons are not in the role of the priest at this point. And in chapter nine, you find some of the offerings that Aaron is making for the people. Uh, there is a goat offering, there's a burnt offering, there is uh, some grain offerings, and so forth. But in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all people. I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. He loses his two sons because they presume that they can do whatever they want even though they are not at this point authorized to offer these type of sacrifices. So, all right, is anybody in Aaron's line going to be proved trustworthy to the Lord's desires? That brings us to the last name in that genealogy, Phineas. Phineas 
appears in Numbers chapter 25. So you're in Numbers, you were in Numbers rather. Uh, go now to chapter 25, and here's where we're going to end our study tonight, okay? So in chapter 25 of Numbers, there is uh, a people called the Moabites that are seducing the Israelite men, okay? And uh, they have to have, they must have this sexuality about them that tempts the Israelite men. Take a look at verse one. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to, to the sacrifices to their gods, okay? And so here's the God that says, hey, I am the God of gods. And it says here, the people ate a sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves together to Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Okay. Remember what we said last week about monolatry? Do you remember that? That the Israelites were prone to worship a lot of gods. It just happened to be the Israelites felt that Yahweh was the chief God or almighty God. Now they're falling back into that pattern again. And it says in verse four, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So they're gonna execute these re uh, rebellious people. Is there anyone that is going to prove faithful? Here comes Phineas. Verse six, it says here, then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses. So he's flaunting the fact that he's gonna take this Midianite lady and he goes into a tent. It says, and the whole assembly of Israel was there, and they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this is the tabernacle, okay, at this point. We'll get to that in Exodus, the building of the tabernacle. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Okay, this is not Sunday school story, okay? This man goes in while the man is having intercourse with the woman and drives a spear through both of them at the same time and kills them. What happens is it relents then this plague that is being brought against the Israelite community because they are intermarrying with forbidden people, the Moabites. So now Phineas, he is as a, a hero. Take a look at Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Oh, 
So it sounds kind of like God was going to annihilate the whole Israelite community, but Phineas stands out as this hero that saves the day. So this is a whole study in and of itself. How to what what are we to make of God? Okay, that's going to be the topic in our Sunday message, not this story. But what do we do with these type of images of God that don't seem to jive with the portrayal of God through Christ in the New Testament? So that's what we're going to talk about on Sunday morning. Is it that they believed all these things and actually felt God was this way, and that later there needed to be some reframing of the understanding of what God is really like, and ultimately Christ, the new Moses, the one that is going to uh, bring a new exodus uh, for people, not just in the Israelite community, but Gentiles as well, out of their bondage. Maybe the bondage is how we are held captive by these erroneous images of God that we have. So we'll talk about that Sunday. But Phineas becomes the great hero. And so now we see the reason for that genealogy. The genealogy shows us the pedigree of Moses and Aaron. And what we find is they continue to be the spokesmen of God, even though some of their relatives do less than desirable things. Does that make sense to everybody? Which is an act of grace on God's part that he allows them to continue to carry on their positions. That's a big section, okay? But it's repeating a couple of things that we already saw before, but it adds some new elements. And those new elements establish the pedigree of Moses and Aaron and their leadership. And the genealogy is to prove that eventually Phineas becomes the great redeemer uh, that causes the um, the plague to be turned back from its full effect. So that's where I want to stop tonight. Huh? Um, that's back in Numbers uh, chapter 25 uh, is the result of it. But uh, you'd have to... I think you got to go a little bit back in numbers, which I couldn't give you the exact verse off the top of my head. But there's a plague being brought against the people because they are intermarrying with the Moabites. That... All right, any questions or comments that you might have that um, you want to talk about for the last couple of seconds here? So it's an interesting book, isn't it? And it is doing a lot of things that are unexpected. There's some twists and some turns that we don't expect in the book. Um, so what we'll do is we'll pick up from there in the book of Exodus next week, we'll, which will launch us into the plagues themselves. Okay, that's the next section. Any final thoughts that you have? Okay, so next week, I, we're not going to be here on site because there's no internet here. I will do the Bible study 
uh, by Zoom only from my house. Okay, so log in on Zoom next week and we'll pick up from there. Okay. All right, we're going to close it up and I hope you have a good evening and uh, go Guardians this weekend, right? All right. Okay. All right. Yeah, playoffs start on Friday. So, all right. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Have a good night.